From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, January 14th. Utah is the fastest growing and second driest state in the country. We also have one of the nation's highest per capita rates of water use. According to a recent investigation by ProPublica, officials often push for costly new infrastructure over conservation. Justin Higginbottom speaks with the report's author, Mark Olalde, about why that is. You reported a great investigative piece for ProPublica about the political influence of water districts in our state. Could you kind of describe to the listener what a water district is? I don't think many people realize what these bodies actually are. Sure. So these are the water conservancy districts. They are the kind of wholesale suppliers of water to the vast majority of the state. They're the ones that uh, kind of get the water at its source. They control the infrastructure, manage it, repair it, et cetera, that kind of gets water to where it's needed. And then they sell it to cities and towns who then sell it uh, directly to people. You found in your reporting that these water districts have a preference when it comes to conservation of water compared to building new infrastructure to bring more water into the state. Yeah, the the big question in kind of Utah water is, if I've got a dollar, do I put that dollar towards trying to conserve water resources already in the state and making the state more efficient? Things like paying people to take out lawns, giving people rebates on low flow toilets, showerheads, sinks, what have you. Or do I put that towards building a new pipeline, a new reservoir, a new dam, a new diversion to get excess water, to store excess water, et cetera? The water districts, although conservancy is in their name, what I found through records requests that got access to a lot of their internal communications and through reading bills they lobbied on and looking into their lobbying disclosures, I found that they would go the route of new water development over conservation in a lot of instances. And what are some of the examples of those water developments? The first is what what could probably be fairly called the most controversial water project in America right now, which is the Lake Powell Pipeline, proposed to go from uh, the Lake Powell Reservoir to St. George in uh, Washington County in the Southwest. The question there, though, is how much allocation does Utah still have on the Colorado? A lot of experts will say Utah's already used all the water it's legally entitled to. Of course, Utah will will say that that's not true. The other one that I looked at was the Bear River Development Project, which would take from the Bear River on the kind of confluence of the Utah, Wyoming, and Idaho borders and send that to the Wasatch Front. The problem there is the Bear River is the main tributary to the Great Salt Lake. So why do they prefer, why do the water districts prefer water development over conservation? A lot of ways, it's an ideological thing, saying this is the way water is done in the West. We know best, and this is the way water is going to be done in the West. Um, in some cases, it's it, a misconception about what the facts are. Some people in the water buffalo community, which is kind of the name for the people who run water in the West, some of them will say new water development is cheaper than than water conservation, which studies have shown is is mainly not true. In most instances, is not actually true. There's been some recent developments in terms of conservation with funding of secondary meters. What is a secondary meter and might this help with Utah conserving water? Utah's got an interesting system in that a lot of properties, um, there's about a quarter million um, connections that have secondary water, which is 
water taken directly from a source, you know, a lake or a river, traditionally for agricultural means, then the system kind of sends it also to, to outdoor use and residential. So you'll have this, this, this kind of untreated, but still usable if it were to be treated water that's being sent to lawns and gardens and things like that. And of these roughly quarter million connections that use this water, 85% of them have no meter. So if you're a house with that, you pay a fee to access that water, and then you use as much as your heart desires, and that's the end of that story. The Weber Basin Water Conservancy District did a study and found that just putting a meter on, just telling people how much water they use in a secondary connection actually decreases usage by 23% purely with the power of knowledge. That's all it takes. But the state wasn't putting up money uh, on that front. There were attempts in the legislature. Senator Jake Anderegg, who's a Republican state senator from the Wasatch Front, was was pushing bills on that front and getting a lot of pushback. And then this year came about and with a ton of federal COVID-19 relief dollars in the state, kind of the state relented and say, okay, well, if the feds are going to pay for it, might as well do it. We're playing, the, playing with the house's money. So uh, a quarter billion dollars has been uh, either allocated or has been proposed to be allocated and will very likely be allocated for installing secondary meters around the state. That was Mark Alalde with ProPublica, and I'm Justin Higginbottom for KZMU News. A national and global effort to conserve 30% of public land and water by 2030 has a new coalition of supporters here in Utah. So, Yate Angelo Baca I am a cultural resources coordinator for Utah Dinebikea. Hello, my name is Johnny Vasek. I'm the executive director of Utah Physicians for Healthy Environment. My name is Isabel Adler, and I'm the public lands program director with Conserve Southwest Utah. I'm Mark Coltrichie, board chair of Mormon Environmental Stewardship Alliance. My name is Lindsay Hutchison, and I'm Utah Rivers Council's water policy associate. Hi, my name is Kitty Coley, and I'm the Great Salt Lake Audubon representative in Utah's 30 by 30 coalition. Utah 30 by 30 is a network of organizations that will focus on protecting 30% of Utah's land and water within the next eight years. This broad network of stakeholders announced their vision in a virtual press conference yesterday. They say Utahns are directly experiencing the effects of climate change. The Great Salt Lake ecosystem might, might serve as a poster child of the myriad ways we need to think about changing how we treat the lands of the state. Mary O'Brien from Project 1100. She says state lawmakers are just beginning to address the issues of the Great Salt Lake, whose elevation dipped to an all-time low last year. Low water levels in the lake present a domino effect of ecosystem-wide consequences. And I think that that's emblematic of the kind of thinking that then needs to be done around other aspects, whether birds or wildlife corridors or native bees or rethinking how we graze the public lands. Utah 30 by 30 representatives pointed to extreme heat and drought that's putting the state's biodiversity and climate resiliency at risk. Olivia Juarez from the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. Naturally functioning dryland ecosystems are important for sequestering the excess carbon in our atmosphere that is causing drought and warming. And so that's why we need to protect it. Five other states are currently engaged in 30 by 30 efforts, according to Utah's organizers. 
Colorado, California, New Mexico, Arizona, and Nevada. Dita Seed from the Center for Biological Diversity says it's not surprising that the West is leading this effort. The West is where the nation's public lands are. And the effects of climate change, the climate crisis, emergency, whatever you want to call it, catastrophe, are really being felt in the West in a very, very immediate way. I mean, you all can remember last summer when we could barely breathe because of the smoke coming from wildfires. So urgent action is required because we're seeing the climate emergency every day all around us. Um, and we, we have to do something. Utah's 30 by 30 coalition plans to bring specific proposals to the White House on how public lands in the state can be protected. Those proposals will be informed by a survey available at utah30by30.org. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. COVID-19 cases are rising in Moab. The Times Independents Doug McMurdo and Sophia Fisher have some of the latest data. Sophia starts things off. I found that, you know, based on data from the Southeast Utah Health Department, cases over the past two weeks, we've had almost 450 percent more than over the two weeks prior. Oh, wow. So January has really shown an explosion. Um, you know, thankfully, there haven't been many additional hospitalizations, only only two or so over the past couple of weeks. Um, and the, the other thing we want to talk about is whether there'd be a mask mandate, because two counties in Utah so far, I believe it's Salt Lake County and Summit County, have instituted mask mandates. So mm. we wanted to talk to Brady Bradford at the health department about his thoughts on not enacting one so far. Being a health administrator at this point in the pandemic is a difficult position. What did he have to say about not enacting a mask mandate at schools right now? Yeah, it was a really interesting discussion. I mean, one of the first things he said is that, you know, as the COVID-19 virus continues to evolve, at some point, the case counts alone will become less relevant for public health decisions than the results of what those cases are actually doing to people. So, you know, he said that his main criterion for implementing a mask mandate would be if the surge in cases also leads to a surge in hospitalizations. But short of that, it seems like he doesn't really want to do that. He, he did mention as well, regarding schools specifically, that um, schools were expected to be this hotbed of contagion. And that didn't seem to happen in Utah, he said, over the course of the fall. Um, so for now, that's, I think, you know, undergirding his decision. He did also say that it's, you know, can be hard to enforce sometimes. He said, you know, if you're not certain that students are keeping their masks on, playing with friends after school mm. or, or on the bus or on the bus to sporting events, that it could render any possible mask mandate like a lot less effective. So it's it's just hard to ensure compliance. That's why he said he's holding off. And he said he is monitoring the, you know, two counties that have enacted mask mandates to see if we need one over the coming days. So he's not completely eliminating this as a possibility. It's just not on the table as we're speaking right now. End of story, but the front page of the Salt Lake Tribune today, uh, 26 schools uh, in Salt Lake are experiencing uh, outbreaks. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it is getting into schools uh, mm-hmm. as of today anyway. Right. Okay. It's a fluctuating situation. Any comments from the school district? Yeah. I mean, the superintendent, Taryn Kay, did say that she would like to see a school mask mandate um, just for 30 days, she said, just to get us over this surge. And, and she ha- has been in conversations with Brady 
at the health department. So I know they're talking. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the meantime, actually, the school district also sent out a press release, I believe, on Tuesday that encouraged several different safety measures as Omicron spreads, including encouraging children in schools to mask up. So I think they're still informally asking parents to try to make that happen. If I could say one more thing, uh, Jen Sadoff, the CEO of Moab Regional Hospital, uh, this is the thing that sticks with me. And this isn't a political comment. This is a public health comment. This is a personal health comment. U of U did a study. Mm -hmm. 100% of Utahns that are on a ventilator in a Utah hospital are unvaccinated. To to me, that's uh, what we call empirical evidence that vaccinations work, boosters work. And I understand we all have some pandemic fatigue. It's we're in the 22nd month right now. Wow. Um, that's a long time. I have not cut my hair since the pandemic began, <laughs> and I can fully put it in a ponytail now, which um, I haven't been able to do that since the 70s, folks. Doug's uh, unofficial pandemic tracker is ponytail. <laughs> Good point. Um, vaccinations and boosters are widely available. Um Where do you want to take us next? Um, I think the other big story on our front page this week was the Walnut Lane housing project, which was discussed at the Moab City Council meeting on Tuesday. Okay, so Walnut Lane, uh, remind us what this project is. So the city actually owns a trailer court um, off of Walnut Lane, kind of uh, near the Hoodoo Hotel, kind of near downtown. Um, And they've been trying to convert a lot of the trailers right now are dilapidated and the city's been trying to build new housing stock specifically for the current residents as well as for other you know people employed here with low mm. incomes etc to help bolster the affordable housing um, inventory in Moab which as everybody knows is notoriously low and it has been plagued with issues recently as well this project um, so I believe that uh, construction was delayed because the organization that we tried to get to build the housing Indie Dwell was not able to receive the bond, I believe that it They couldn't get a performance bond. They couldn't yeah. get the performance bond that they'd hoped to, and so they've dropped out of the project since. And um, I think there's a, still many large questions about how this is going to happen. And, and what Doug wrote in his coverage is that the city's currently deciding whether or not to hire a master developer or to continue with the design-bid-build program that they've mm. so far been pursuing. Can you break that down for us? Master developer versus design-bid-build? What the heck does that mean? Okay, this is all for just phase one, not sure. the entire project. Sure. And, and phase one is designed to get um, enough people that are living there now in the trailers uh, into new housing so they can haul off those trailers and use that ground to actually build more. Uh, master developer is just like what it sounds. They would be in charge um, from the start to finish of this project. They would be like a general contractor, mm-hmm. but um, working for the city. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the design bid build was an avenue that they decided to take um, in September, I believe they voted to do that. And the thought there was Indie Dwell did a course of work before they fell apart. Yeah. They were unable to meet their requirements yeah. of the contract. It really put the city in a really bad spot, and it uh, threatened to, to derail the project. But what they decided was, you know, the drawings are fine. The architectural mm-hmm. work that Indie Dwell did uh-huh. is, is fine, and we own that mm-hmm. because we paid for that that work. And um, we're going to use that design, and we're just going to hire somebody to bid and build it. Okay. So, and, and those will be <laughs> duplexes. So. 
that's what we have. So those are the sort of options on the table right now. The city council has to decide what they want. The new city council, right? We have a new mayor. We have two new city council members. So mm-hmm. these new collection of people have to decide what they want to do. Right. Uh, as I mentioned in, in the story, uh, Caitlin Myers, the uh, city's now former uh, senior projects manager, she offered a really comprehensive, in-depth update for mm-hmm. the for the new mayor and the new councilors. And at the end of that, you know, the question came, and it's been a question that's been um, in back of everybody's mind for a, a couple of months, thanks to uh, finance director uh, Ben Billingsley, who's also the acting deputy mm-hmm. city manager. Uh, but they had a serious discussion on whether or not to return the $6.5 million bond because they're paid interest in it. And mm-hmm. with Indy Dwell, you know, no construction start, they're reaching the point where it's it's going to be a better idea to just give that bond back and rebond when we're ready in a few months to save money, which mm. is pretty serious because it's hundreds of dollars a day in interest. Mm. So that's pretty huge. And then there's a discussion on whether they even need to be bonded for phase one because what's going on is they have um, over 600000 I think over 630000 um in ARPA funding. Yeah. You know, um, for that specifically for that project, and they also have access to other money, so they they could um, feasibly do the uh, phase one without getting a bond and without mm-hmm. incurring any debt, which would be huge. That would be huge. So that would that's also a, a, another option on the table. Okay, so so not only like what this development is going to look like, whether it's going to be a master developer or design bid build, but also how it's going to be financed. Right, and how long they're going to have to wait to see a return. Right. Um, it used to be 10 years, now it's at 13 years, so there's discussion on reducing the number of required parking spaces so they could put... Um, 12 more units, which would make it 92. Current plans are for 80. 12 more would make it 92. um, And that would uh, get them at the break-even point sooner. Well, thank you all so much for that coverage. And we can move on to some tragic news in Moab. Um, We lost a a Moab local. Um, can Can you talk about this? Yes. Uh, last Friday, uh, we could go today, January 7th, um, a local uh, James Richard Jimmy Pushert, and if I'm mispronouncing uh, his last name, I apologize. Uh, he was killed in a wingsuit incident out in Professor Valley. Uh, his uh, body was recovered about 1,000 feet from his jump-off point. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, he was a veteran jumper. He was a flyer, uh, as, mm. they, as they call themselves. And um, he seemed like a real good guy. I wish I had, had known him. And it was just really sad. It was the first um, response from Grand County Sheriff's Search and Rescue of the Year. And oh, it was wow. a fatality. So um, pretty tough. It's really tough on our first responders and tough on our Moab community. It is, yep. Anything else you want to mention about this week's paper? Sure. Um, actually, you know, on a, on a lighter note, we also introduced Moab's first baby of 2022. All right. She's very cute. I have seen her. Her name is Zoe Daisy Kamensky, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, she was born on at 3.55 p.m. on Tuesday, January 4th. She was 22 inches and, and weighed 7 pounds and 15 ounces. Um, and the baby and her mother have received a number of gifts from local businesses, um, you know, from the Chevron to Crumpreese Tires to Moonflower, et cetera. Um, so we're really excited to welcome Zoe to Moab. It's also um, a family tradition. Her uh, older sister, Tara Lee, also delivered Moab's oh, first really? baby in 2008. <laughs> she also got a bundle of goods, yes. huh? For that they got a scam going. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Doug McMurdo and Sophia Fisher of the Times Independent. 
Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. COVID-19 transmission is the top story this week. The Moab Sun News has more in their coverage about how to take precautions. Here's reporter Allison Hartford. So Southeast Utah is seeing a record spike in COVID cases. I mean, this is something that's happening nationwide, especially because of, um, you know, it's just the holidays and also it's winter. So people Mm -hmm. are spending a lot more time inside. And also the Omicron variant spreads really quickly. So kind of all of these things are contributing to this huge spike in our area. And so according to the Southeast Utah Health Department, on January 12th, there were over 540 reported active COVID cases in Carbon, Emory, and Grand Counties. And that was fueled in part by a record spike of 181 new cases in those counties on January 10th. Yeah, and then I talked to Jennifer Sadoff, the CEO of the Moab Regional Hospital, um, and she said the hospital saw its highest percentage of positive cases to date on January 11th. I also talked to Brittany Garf, who's a public information officer at the Southeast Utah Health Department, um, and she said that Omicron is very present in our community, um, and it is definitely here in spreading. Mm. Um, So on January 12th, there were 185 active cases in Grand County, and two people were hospitalized. So the Omicron variant is definitely um, spreading fast, Mm. highly transmissible. Um, and I'm sure you're going to bring up the school district. Yeah. So to my knowledge, Grand County School District, I mean, as of yesterday, the Grand County School District does not have any plans to reinstitute a mask mandate, um, according to the school secretary. And on January 12th, there were 11 active positive student cases and zero active amongst the faculty and staff. You know, it's tricky with the school district. Um, I think like nationwide, we're seeing a lot more school districts Mm -hmm. grapple with mask mandates and doing school online. Um, But Utah is one of nine states in the country that restricts mask mandates in schools. Um, This bill was signed by Governor Spencer Cox in May 2021, and it prohibits both schools and the Utah Board of Education from acquiring face coverings in order for students to attend schools. Mm. Um, So the way that, you know, the school district has gotten around this in the past is that local health departments can issue a 30-day school mask mandate um, with approval from the state or county government. Mm. But so far, that hasn't happened. And I mean, Grand County also doesn't have a mask mandate in effect, um, but all city and county buildings like City Hall and the Grand County Library um, and a few local businesses like Back of Beyond Books, um, those require masks. Mm-hmm. And the Moab City Council moved their meetings online for the next three weeks, citing mm-hmm. COVID-19 concerns. Yeah, okay. So um, the situation in Grand County is Omicron is here. It's mm-hmm. spreading. Um, you know, a lot of people are talking about the less severe symptoms. However, you know, it still is a very serious situation for certain mm-hmm. members of our population. I'm thinking immunocompromised people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't know the effects of um, the virus on long COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, any any advice to keep people safe? Um, at this time. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Jennifer Sadoff mentioned that also is that a vast majority of people will probably run into this variant. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, despite how people are getting milder symptoms, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to prevent the spread of it. Mm. Um, She mentioned that it's really important to try to keep vulnerable populations safe. Um, And she also mentioned that, you know, even when people 
get this variant, um, even if they're not that sick, they can't like come and work and they can't participate in society. Mm-hmm. And so she said at the hospital, what they're really concerned with is more and more staff members testing positive and then they can't mm-hmm. come to work and then there's staffing shortages at the hospital, which would be mm-hmm. horrible. So it's still really important to try to prevent the spread. And she and Brittany Garf at the health department both said that the best way to do that is first to get vaccinated um, and then to um, wear a mask and also to kind of social distance a little bit. And Sadoff said, you know, maybe you should consider wearing a mask at work and consider not being as social as maybe we've gotten used to in the past couple months. Right. Keeping in mind people in our community who are more vulnerable than others. Right. Um, and being mindful of who you're around. Mm-hmm. And The Sun this week has uh, some follow-up coverage about Arches and their timed entry system. Tell us what's happening there. Yeah, so um, as of January 11th, 18% of all the April uh, tickets to get into Arches or roughly 7,000 have sold, according to um, Caitlin Thomas, who's a public affairs specialist for the park. So April's the first month that visitors to Arches will have to reserve a day and time to enter the park um, as part of their like pilot timed entry system. Mm-hmm. And this system will be in place from April to October 2022. So anyone who wants to go to the park on those days has to pick a day and a time slot, which is broken up by the hour, um, to enter the park. And those start at 6 a.m. and then end with the hour between 4 and 5 mm-hmm. Um, so tickets are limited to around 120 per hour, but the park is ultimately planning to let in around 2,700 vehicles per day. So this will definitely limit the number of people who are able to get into the park, but it's also kind of a good thing. Like, I mean, if you think of the park in peak seasons, it was kind of like, if you tried to go after like 9am, mm-hmm. you would have to wait in an hour line and then... Who knows if you would even get parking Mm -hmm. and like it was kind of a mess. And so this will ensure that people are able to get parking and they'll be able to enter the park. And so Arches has been grappling with this um, pretty seriously since 2019 when the annual park visitation hit a record number of visitors. It was like a million seven hundred thousand visitors. Ever since 2019, increasing visitation and a lack of parking spaces has really defined arches. And this past year, the park had to shut its gates nearly every day in September and October because of overcrowding. When I talked to park officials, they said that they weren't super surprised that 18% of the tickets have already sold. Um, They went on sale on the 3rd, so um, it's been like a little bit over a week. That's an interesting 18%. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to like contextualize that in my mind. This is so new. No. Like, is yeah. that a lot? Is that a little? You right. Know, what did the park service staff say? You know, there's like a steady rate of sales or? Yeah. So 5,000 tickets sold on the very first day on January 3rd. Okay. And since then, 2,000 more have sold. Okay. Um, so each day there are roughly 1,400 tickets for sale. As of right now, no hour is completely sold out yet. And also there will be last minute tickets available that people can try to get like the day before they're entering the park. And anyone who enters by bike doesn't need a reservation. Mm. Um, and there are a couple of other exemptions, like if you have camping or a backcountry or a special use permit, 
Um, anyone with commercial use authorization or any tribal members don't need to reserve a time to enter the park. Well, thanks for those updates, Allie. Yeah. And uh, finally, there's some fun news about a new pizza place. Yes. So there's a new pizza restaurant coming to Moab. Um, It's supposed to open in late January, and it's a new location of Canyon Pizza Co., which was founded in Nephi. Hmm. Um, So I talked to Michael Galler, who's the general manager of the restaurant's new location, Um, And it'll be on Main Street right across from the Radcliffe and City Market. Okay. Um, It used to be a car dealership. So it's kind of this like huge building and they have a bunch of windows. Um, Eventually they'll have a patio. And uh, talking to Michael, he's really psyched about it. Um, And he said that kind of the biggest thing with the new restaurant is that First, they're going to do a lot of flavors and a lot of specialties, like he mentioned, um, a cheeseburger pizza and a Thai (laughs) special um, and like a Nashville chicken hot pie pizza. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah. And he has a background in fine dining. So he also said that he and the owner of the original location, whose name is Cameron, um, the two of them like tried a dozen different types of pepperoni, trying to decide mm. which one to use. Um, and they use flour sourced from the Rocky Mountains. You said it's on Main Street, that big building that used to be a car dealership with all the big windows and the mural on the side. Yes, there's mm-hmm. a mural. Right. I can imagine it's probably very difficult to open a restaurant right now right. in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah. The original location opened uh, like early March 2020. Oh, wow. And so they had to work really quickly and kind of like figure out how to do um, takeout and online ordering and like keep everyone safe who is making food and Mm so that kind of transferred over to the Moab location but the Moab location will have dining Mm -hmm. in also. And of course pizza goes hand in hand with to go. Right (laughs) yes. (laughs) So they do have a good model there. (laughs) Yeah. Allison Harford staff reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.